This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 114 of Real Blend, a podcast that just wants to go back to the movie theaters. Aww. And we might have some news on that uh, coming up soon, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but we are back on youtube live uh we're recording everybody here so you can see that i am sean o'connell the managing director of cinema blend joined as always by jake hamilton of fox 32 in chicago where it snowed today hi jakey how are you it snowed today and everyone's freaking out but do you guys remember where we were a year ago today uh don't do that That's we sad. were in chicago together yeah. for star wars celebration for the meetup and what happened it snowed. It's, it snowed also, yes. And yes. people at the time said this is relatively normal and like April snow is It's really- not it's not entirely I mean it sucks, but it's not entirely out of the question. Um I remember thinking at the time that it was fun because it was uh the day of the premiere episode of Game of Thrones. And so it was right. a very winter is coming, and then also you could make the joke that uh, uh that was Chicago cosplaying as the planet Hoth. So, yes, um, so, yeah, so, you know, it is what it is. It happens. And uh, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. got stranded in a, yeah. a in an airport. And I you were describing everybody in the baggage claim department, the, the sheer amount of people. Lauren and I were literally on the plane. You were on the plane. I remember yeah, that. That's right. That's right, right. right. We were on. Oh, the it was plane. Gabe in the baggage claim. That's right. Yeah. And like, but, Lauren... but do you guys remember how we all had such a great time watching uh, Game of Thrones together. We ordered pizza and we got a couple of beers. And you remember yeah, how Sean basically that. said, F you guys. I'd, yeah. I'd literally didn't. rather get yeah. in a car and drive across the country than spend yeah. one extra night. You, you guys mean, remember that? I mean, across the country or to St. Louis, which is just a few hours away. I don't but know. Yeah, it's the, it's the Midwest. <laughs> yes, everything's close to that. Hi, Kev. How are you? Hey, good to see you, Sean, Jake, Gabe. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was a really cool, obviously a great moment for our show to have that uh, amazing meetup in Chicago. Star Wars celebration was super special. But yeah, it was really funny the idea of winter or snow keeping us in Chicago. But I'm glad we all got to watch it together. Just bummed how that season turned out. But you know, oh well. <laughs> it is what it is. Hopefully, we can get excited about. Remember um, when that was our biggest concern? Yeah. Remember how the big of Game that of Thrones? Was? Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember? That was also the same weekend where I was at the AT and T store. Yeah. And I went to visit the throne, and the per- next person in line to get a picture of the throne was Kathleen Kennedy. And then <laughs> I, I took a photo with Kathleen Kennedy, myself, and Lauren at the throne. The weirdest part about that is, now looking back on it, she was there because she's a Game of Thrones fan, but she also was getting ready to do a trilogy with the creators of Game of Thrones for Star Wars. Remember, at that point, yeah. they were still doing it. So I remember yeah. her telling me that she was basically there to support them. I mean, she was there for Star Wars, don't uh, clearly, but she went to the store because she wanted to support Game of Thrones and like send the photo to like DB Weiss and uh Benioff or whatever their names are, but didn't she lean over and whisper in your ear in your ear and then I'm going to fire them? <laughs> no. That that did not happen. Uh, I, I am a Kathleen Kennedy fan, but that did not happen. Um she did say, "Kevin, I am very sorry for the solo name scene." 
Uh, and she was just very, th- so thank you. She did not say that. I'm kidding, but I wish she did. <laughs> you know, you don't have to like clarify that she didn't say that. You know that like you can let the joke rest. No, no, you can no. Just let it breathe. There's a thing There's called the internet. There's that don't need to be said. There's a thing called the internet where people can splice out exact things oh, you dude, say. We are a hundred yeah. plus episodes into this show. The internet can now make us say anything that they want us to say. Oh, that's true. That's kind of scary. All right, episode highlights. We are going to dive into actual movie news, uh, Dune photos, and Jake is going to give us a tutorial about all the reasons why we should be excited for it. Yes! We have an interview on this week's show with the great Michael Shannon, who's promoting a film called The Quarry, and we also talk about a number of films from his past. Gabe wants me to point out that we aren't on YouTube Live. Did I say YouTube Live? You I did. just meant YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to say that, no. And everybody, for some reason, wants us to do Facebook Live, but I don't get what the point of doing Facebook Live is. It's I think because they can comment? Is it because they can like actively oh, talk to us? We don't want that. That would be horrible. We barely no. even want each other's comments. <laughs> exactly. I'm muting the text thread constantly. <laughs> Uh, but I will send you guys over to the Facebook community page where you can comment left and right on all the threads that you guys will create. Uh, head over there and search for Real Blend Podcast Community. As you now can see, we're posting these episodes on Cinema Blend's YouTube page. Uh, we're going to do a big blowout uh, advertisement to let people know that we are back to doing video once Jake's video actually works. Uh, so we'll, so he's not a cartoon head uh, in all of the episodes. And of course, we're available wherever all your favorite podcast apps are. So if you aren't already subscribed, do so now. Tell a friend, and then we'll have a review at the end of the show. Thank you guys for pushing us over 100 reviews on uh, the iTunes. Little OCD oh, thing that we? I asked for last week. Yes, now we're at 101. Wait, uh, did you ever got... Did you get to see it be 100? No, I didn't. Oh, I went and no. saw it at 101. <laughs> and, and we got one real review... <laughs> And then one person who said they were posting it just to get us to a hundred, and they ended up. Oh up. no! So, uh, but I, but listen, I you meant well, <laughs> and I appreciate the effort. Uh, it that was that was very nice, you guys. So now we have to get to like one ten, just a round. I need a round number. It's sick. It's it's really weird. Um, Whenever you change the volume on your TV, does it have to be in like um like a numerical of five or a numerical of ten? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'm yeah, weird. Does. I'm three, five, yeah. and seven, and eleven. If anything is a six or a thirteen, I know those are like generically like negative numbers, but those are the. T- I, I can't do something six times. It has to be three, five, or seven for my OCD. Kev, what about the numbers on Lost? Do they mess with you? No, don't say anything yet. He doesn't know much. Does he not know about the numbers? Wait, do you know about four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-three, forty-two? N- numbers is the episode that I'm getting ready to watch. Oh, <laughs> wow! I almost yeah. blew it. I almost That's said right. something so significant. Literally, the next episode I'm going to hit play on today is is Hurley's backstory. Right? That's yeah. That, that, yeah. So Lauren, my wife Lauren, has been watching all of these episodes with me. She's seen Lost uh, twice now, all the way through, um, and she's getting a kick out of watching me react to it. Um, I thankfully don't really know anything i i remember hearing about the final episode when it aired i don't remember much about what the context is i know there's the debate about whether or not they're dead or alive that's fine but right now i'm i'm just in it and i will say this and i know we have to move on but uh to give jake credit lost is 
it's one of the richest stories I've ever heard in regards to character development. I'm just blown away by the way my mind expected these characters to be, who they were going to be, and who they've <laughs> turned out to be. Um, right now, I'm all in on Sawyer. I think he's my favorite character in the That's show. Awesome. I think that character is so layered. It's going to be like your favorite yeah. character, I think, and Sean, you can agree or disagree. It's going to shift throughout the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a shout out to Larry Fong and like the the the... the Cinematography on that show is yeah. mind blowing. Like the transfer I'm watching on my Blu-ray is unbelievable. He shot 35 millimeter. It is just an incredible show. It's like there, there will never be a show like that on network television again. Like you look at that yeah. and you think like, oh, I bet that was on HBO or something. But it wasn't. Oh, yeah. It was on. It was on yeah. network TV <clears throat> and had commercials. I don't understand. Like, so one of the things I'm doing with it, uh, with the Blu-ray, which is kind of cool, and for people out there who haven't seen Lost or if you want to rewatch Lost, this is actually kind of an interesting thing. If you get the Blu-ray set, the Blu-ray acts as the as the television series, so it gives you previously ons before the oh, episode cool. starts, and you get the exact to black breaks when they go to commercial breaks, which is kind of cool. I think it makes me feel like I'm watching it on but TV. But isn't that like if you watch any show that had commercial breaks, don't they do that? Like if they, you watch them on Netflix? I think sometimes what they'll do is they'll either go right to the next scene. They generally do go to black, but I think like I've Better never, Call Saul goes to black. It Yeah, I think it depends on whether or not – because I haven't seen Saul on Netflix because I've watched it on the yeah. network. It goes to black. Yeah. By the way, uh, anybody out there watching Better Call Saul – uh, if you're not caught up on this season, I'm not the, on five. I'm not going to say anything, yet. but the last two episodes of this season, season five, are going to blow your mind. Uh, Sean, I don't know where you're at yet, but just wait, man. It's it's, I'm not, it's not it's not Breaking Bad, man. I'm not, uh -oh. I don't I, I don't think it touches Breaking Bad. All right, we got to move on. <laughs> we got to move on. Uh, this week's poll, we threw out uh, this because this was from our text chain. I'm pretty sure, right? It's Paul Thomas Anderson. We were talking about the fact that Jake was watching Magnolia, and then he was. Going down this rabbit hole of Paul Thomas Anderson films, we started talking about why some of us don't like Magnolia as much as the others do. Um, I have issues with Magnolia. I need to revisit it. It's not one that I've seen in a it's while. It's on Netflix. Uh, yeah, and that's I'll fire it up then. I just remember not really liking it as much the first time I saw it, and and mainly the characters. Certain characters are just really unlikable, and then I remember Julianne Moore's character being really, really unlikable. Um, I do think Cruz is fantastic in it, and I'm sure that now that I'm catching up with it, or will catch up with it, Later on, it's a different movie. Uh, then we talked about Inherent Vice in the text chain back and forth. But I wanted to put a poll up. I ended up putting up this week's uh, weekly poll. And we started talking about Paul Thomas Anderson. I, I asked people which Paul Thomas Anderson film is better. But I only gave you two choices. Um, I didn't want to give an other in this one because it would give you an out. I needed people to choose between Boogie Nights uh, and There Will Be Blood, which I think are largely considered to be uh, his two top films. I mean, people yeah. will argue Punch Drunk Love or... Um, phantom thread or something like that but um those two seem to stand out as being the ones so kev i'm gonna put it to you uh if you had to choose between those two there will be blood or boogie nights which one do you think won? this is best not favorite i mean knowing our listeners i, I would imagine there will be blood because like that is uh i mean but those are two of his best movies no question whatsoever um arguably yeah. though i would argue the best movie he's ever made is phantom thread from from a wow, pure really? cinematic you think you think Technically, that's better than There Will Be Blood. I do. I think Dude. Phantom Thread has, in my opinion, the I just found it to be a more enjoyable experience. There Will Be Blood is a interesting. It's funny because because the, they're we're talking about films that are both ten out of tens here. These are these are masterpiece level uh, cinematic achievements. Um, I it's funny we discuss best and favorite a lot. I would argue that our viewers, our listeners, definitely went with There Will Be Blood, but Boogie Nights is definitely right there. I mean, these are movies that are 
arguably loved by everybody who loves cinema, essentially, in my opinion. So they did. They went with There Will Be Blood, but it was really close. It was 54% to 45%. Uh, there Will Be Blood ended up prevailing. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's like it's separated by a hair, essentially. And a ton of votes, too. So thank you, everybody who voted in the weekly poll. It's funny, though, because like to Jake's point about like the surprise of Phantom Thread being my favorite or the best thing he's ever made. It, Phantom Thread was a film that I got to luckily experience in 70 millimeter in at the Arclight in L.A. And there's something about that experience that will always be, I guess, personally magical to me. But also I was also there when they curated a playlist because Paul PTA had a playlist curated 30 minutes prior to the movie. Now, again, these are all factors that went into my experience with the movie, which obviously go into how I feel about the experience of the movie. So clearly those are things you have to take into account. I just think Phantom Thread is him working at his most masterful level as a director so far. And I think that everything he's done, you know, Punch Drunk Love is amazing. There Will Be Blood is amazing. I would rather watch There Will Be Blood over Phantom Thread. But I do think Phantom Thread is probably his greatest cinematic achievement. But it's funny, Jake and I were discussing earlier, we were discussing earlier about Boogie Nights. It's a much more rewatchable film. It's not an enjoyable film, but it's much more entertaining. It flows well. Um, There are so many iconic scenes in Boogie Nights. You know, I was was joking with you guys about growing up. um, When I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me watch R-rated movies of certain kinds. I don't know how your parents were. I'd love to know how your parents were because... I was the house that other kids came over to because my parents would let me watch whatever movie I wanted to watch. So there, so there's where, there's where it gets interesting. My parents were cool about R-rated violence, but I was not allowed to watch any sex or nudity. So I remember... See, when, that's when we, what messes up Americans. Right. <laughs> it's so, so hypocritical. You remember when I talked to Jamie, when we had Jamie Lee Curtis on Real Blend, I, I specifically told her about a story where when I was watching True Lies for the first time, they let me watch all the violence in the film. But then when she danced, they, they made me close my eyes. And I wanted to get her opinion on that as a, as a mother of, 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 a, of her own child. Great and kind question. of And so flip side of that, Boogie Nights was one of those films that fell into that window of, Kevin, you can't watch this because this was like, Based on the porn industry, but that's legitimately, yeah, yeah. There's a difference between we're not letting you watch this right. sort of striptease <laughs> dance versus a movie about the porn industry that ends yeah. with a dude literally like like hanging his dick out. Yeah, and and <laughs> weirdly enough, well, but weirdly enough, um, you think about this particular movie though, and that was the quintessential Kevin you can't watch, right? So my buddy Scott was <laughs> Scott was you, Jake. So I would go over to Scott's house, and Scott's parents would let us watch everything. And Scott's parents went on a date that night. So me, my buddy Brian, Scott, we all went over and Dan and we and we and we sat now, around What the was it about that movie that made you guys? Was it just like, oh, my God, guys, there's a movie about porn. Like, what I, was it that made a bunch of like young teenage boys want to watch Boogie Nights? I'm trying to remember the. Uh, so if it came out in what? You said 96, 97, like 97. Okay, because because Magnolia was 99. Right. So I was 13 when Boogie Nights came out. So I'm, you know, I'm freshman in high school, you know. We're all we all heard about the film. My parents went and saw it. Remember, if your parents say, Kevin, you can't watch this movie. What's, what am I going to do? I'm going to yeah, go watch the first movie. thing. Right. Yeah, because they're basically saying, Kevin, this is one you are not allowed to watch. I'm like, well, what's in this movie that I can't see? Um, but so wait, I did would, they see it and tell oh, you yeah. this? OK, oh, they yeah. saw it. It's because because oh, my parents used to just like flat out like sight unseen. Just be like, oh, no, you can't see that. So my folks actually uh, go to the movies once a week. They always have. That's kind of where I, I fell in love with film. So they always went on Friday nights to the new release that weekend. I'll never forget them going to see True Lies without me, Terminator 2 without me. Uh, I'll just never forget those like those nights those babysitters so came over. 
Damn it, Jill. They came Terminator back and they two. were like, it was so awesome. <laughs> In my parents' defense. And I'm I picturing was... like a little tiny Kevin with a re- with a regular adult-sized head. But just like a little tiny Kevin. Just like waving his little arms. But I was eight years old when T2 came out. So real quick on the Boogie Nights thing. So I go over to Scott's house and uh, his parents are out for the for a date night or whatever. And we start the film and, we're, and we, we think we're the coolest kids on the planet because we're watching Boogie Nights. There's nudity in the movie we're you know we're 13 year old boys we're hanging out in the house and then all of a sudden his mom walks in right during like a hot, this hot tub scene i remember if i remember correctly the hot tub scene had like two naked women in the hot tub during this like particular scene thankfully she didn't walk in during um julianne moore and more I, I feel like there are worse scene. scenes yeah. in that movie they could have walked in or on. roller girl um yeah. but but that particular scene i just remember her walking in and we all froze because we were like looking at the screen there's nudity on the screen and then there's four guys <laughs> sitting around the, the the couch and she was like hey guys and then just walked away that was it. I'll just never I forget feel like, that you know, moment. It's, it's a law of the universe that if you are watching a three-hour movie that has a 30-second sex scene, your parents are going to walk in the room during that. It's just, it's just the way the universe works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I never I, really understood it. And, and I know we have to move on, but I wanted to ask Sean this question, Gabe, if you don't mind real quick. You're a dad. Yeah. When you were showing your kids – first of all, when did you allow your kids to watch R-rated movies? And what are your thoughts on violence and sex and nudity? Do you, are you the opposite? It's so, uh, so PJ probably started seeing his first R-rated movies when he was 15. No. Mm. Yeah. 15. I don't think it was 14. Although I think I showed him Die Hard and Speed, is Speed R? Speed yeah. is R. Speed is R. Yeah. Okay. So I picked more action driven ones because right. language isn't that big of a deal. You do, there is something wonky about nudity. There's right? just, but it's, but it's more that I don't want to be sitting next to him when we watch something with nudity. Right. Um, and violence, like, so in the Die Hard movies, as an example, I showed him part two and, uh, part two has so much language and it's really violent. Like the, it's squibs. And obviously he knows it's not real, but even he turns to me at one point and he's like, I don't even think I should be watching this. I was like, like, you're probably right. Like it is pretty intense, but I'll tell you. He called out your parenting. He did. Yeah. And he's a responsible kid. Um, but he's 16 and it's funny, like. Michelle and I are watching Leftovers. We finished The Leftovers. Um, and Leftovers is not a sexual show, but there's a lot of nudity in it. Yeah. Um, and we watch a ton of stuff on the downstairs TV now because the boys are just up in their rooms. They, they, they're they to the point where they don't need us anymore. And they're out of the way. But PJ has come down and like sat on the couch and like <laughs> picked up pieces of Leftovers um, without watching any of the real episodes. And But he's kind of intrigued. Like he wants to know where everybody disappeared to and he wants to know what the guilty remnant is. And I'm I'm going way off track, but the no, point being, cool. we get to a point where Carrie Coon is going to go into this thing at the end of the, the the season, and she disrobes, and Michelle and I were so riveted, and then we were like, oh wait, PJ, don't, and he goes, <laughs> and he was literally like, oh, I don't care, I just want to know what happens, like, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh wow, that's that's weird, you know, like if we didn't make a big deal about it, he would have just kept right. watching, and it yeah, wouldn't have been right. a big deal. So. For some reason, that was always an uncomfortable thing. I, I remember my dad taking my parent, uh, us to see The Rock, and we, I remember him walking up to the booth uh, at AMC Patrick Henry in Newport News. This is ninety six. Was there like one sex scene in that? Yeah, and Early so he, on too. he pulls the manager aside. He buys two adults and two tickets and two kids tickets for The Rock. And I'm like so excited because this was back in the day when I would see a trailer on TV and I would beg my parents to take me to see it. That's like I'm, I just missed that. So my dad pulls the manager aside and I don't get to hear what he's asking. And I asked my mom later on. She he was asking if there was any sex in the movie because he wanted to uh, cover our eyes when anything happened. So the sex scene in The Rock is like not even 
bad. It's like no. it's it, it's right before Fully he gets clothed. The, right, yeah. he gets the phone Outdoors. call. It's like a religious. It's like a religious uh, moment, right? Isn't are they doing it to consummate the before they get married? It was like a it was like a religious thing uh, for her side of the wedding. I think um, maybe it's still sex. Still either sex. way, but so I'll never forget my dad and mom and I all sitting there, and of course we had to cover our eyes, and but I could watch. People get blown to bits and like f bombs all over he the place. Like a little green ball in the dude's mouth, and his mouth yeah. is foaming. And yeah. I, I'm like fist pumping. I'm like heck yeah, and then yeah, close my eyes. The same thing. I just I'll never understand it. But you're a parent, and you clearly have that same weirdness as well. It's it something is, about it's a nudity. Weird, it's a weird, uh, very natural feeling of just like. It's, 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 yeah. I don't know yeah. how to explain it, but it is really weird. Anyways, yeah. There will be blood. Anyway. Won the poll. Yes. <laughs> That's a, a very long way of saying Thank you for that tangent. You guys like there will be blood more than anything else. Um, we are still maintaining our interviews whenever possible, and we've been lucky enough to get some great guests. On whenever the possible. We've been interviewing more people now than we have been so in true. the history of the show. Can we say who we've talked to real quick? Alicia Silverstone, Michael Shannon, who you're about to hear. Barry Sonnenfeld's available on a, on a, on a, a bonus episode right now. We talked to him for an hour. Uh, we got some big ones coming up, which we won't say because hashtag if it happens. Um, but yeah. Oh, Joey Pantoliano. That happened. Oh, we have yeah. Joey Pants. We're and we're talking Matrix and Bad Boys. Is and right so now my, t- my TV bosses are going, so you got any of them celebrity interviews? I'm like, well, my <laughs> podcast does. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're lining them up. So this one is Michael Shannon, uh, who is nice enough to join us from his home. He's promoting a film that was supposed to be going to South by Southwest. This is part of the initiative that we um, launched a while ago to give some more of a spotlight to the films that were going to Austin and were not able to get there. Uh, this one got picked up by Lionsgate and is going to their VOD. It's called The Quarry. And um, so we sat down with Shannon to talk to, uh, talk to him about that film and uh, some other really big films in his career. So without further ado, the Real Blend interview with Michael Shannon. First of all, thank you, Michael, for joining the Real Blend podcast. This is an absolute honor to have you on the show. Um, we know that this film was specifically going to premiere at South by Southwest. And obviously, with the festival being canceled and uh, and everything happening right now with the pandemic, the film was not able to have its premiere there. I was just curious for you as somebody who's worked on so many projects over your career, whether they be smaller budget films or larger budget films, you understand the importance of what a festival can bring to a movie or, or a premiere at a festival. Well, uh, what do, can you talk about what that was like in regard to have a film that was canceled at the festival and what a festival can do for a movie? What, what signal boost it gives a film? Well, first and foremost, I just felt real bad for the the festival itself and um, the city of Austin. Um, I know that was a real crushing blow for them uh, to lose that. uh, That's, I mean, I'm sure it's a huge economic uh, boon for the town and um, and also a big part of their identity, you know. So I really, my heart goes out to them. but we 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 felt so grateful to be invited into the festival in the first place, um, and we felt like it was the perfect festival for the film, the perfect place for it to premiere. Um, so it, it was a blow, but you you have to put everything in perspective. Um, mm. And I honestly think that as much as I wish that we were getting a theatrical release. Uh, I think this is a, a great time for the film to come out and it's it's great to be able to offer people something new uh, to take their minds off uh, what's going on for a couple hours. But who knows? We could get lost in the shuffle. Um, I know I haven't personally been watching a lot of 
movies on I find it hard to concentrate uh right now but um yeah we were we were really looking forward to south by for sure uh michael you've obviously worked with uh with shay wiggum before in both take shelter and uh and boardwalk empire and a lot of times when you hear uh, of an actor having worked with a director multiple times they, they start talking about having kind of this common language and they understand each other but i'm curious as actors when you have two actors who've worked together a lot do you develop like do you sort of know what to expect coming in uh, when you work with the same actor, or is it dis- still different every time? Because technically, you guys are playing different characters under every different circumstance. Yeah, you know, I'd say first and foremost, we're we're friends, you know, and we appreciate each other. Um, but it, it is true that ideally, every time you engage in this uh, practice, you're you're doing something surprising to yourself and to other people. So. Um, I think I think what's valuable about it is that we really care about each other and we look out for each other and um, and we can talk to each other pretty honestly. There's not a lot of uh, barriers. So even if you want to come and say, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? In certain examples, there can be ego involved, or it's you don't or you don't you don't it doesn't feel appropriate to to talk to someone that way. But, you know, we, we, we can say pretty much anything to each other. Um, you know, Shay's just a real good listener, a great listener and, um, an observer of, of people. And, uh, I, th- I think that's something we have in common. We're just fascinated by, by people and what they do. Michael, I got to admit that, um, while I was watching the quarry, uh, the only thing I could really think about was because Shay's character has to, um, assume someone else's identity and essentially pull off, uh, being this other person when he goes into the small town. It just reminded me so much of what actors do. And I was thinking the entire time of, uh, if you and Shay as, as being extremely gifted actors <laughs> were to try to do that, were to try to go into a small town, assume someone else's identity because that is essentially your skill set. Uh, how far do you think you could possibly get uh, by trying to pull it off and be someone else uh, and assume a different identity? Oh my identity? God. I would, I would get, I would get scared. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think I got what it takes. I mean, yeah, you would think uh, if you're smart you'd, as an actor, you just go into the, be a con artist, right? But I think the con artist probably got something on us. I don't know. I mean, the stakes for us. I mean, I don't want to say they're low. I mean, you don't want to stink and you want to make sure that someone calls you for a job again. But the stakes for them are so much higher. The stakes for the man in this movie are, are so high. It's one of the things that makes it so compelling, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Michael, you've worked with some of the greatest directors in the history of movies, and uh, I've always wanted to talk to you about other filmmakers you're excited to work with because I can't wait to see your style of acting blend together with certain filmmakers. Um, I I love what you do from a personal level because even when you do smaller budget films to larger budget films, you still bring 100%, and I always feel for your characters, even in something like A Man of Steel, which is one of my favorite superhero movies ever. I thought you were brilliant (laughs) as Zod. I I genuinely love that movie. Um, And I've always wanted to ask you this, and I know it might be a little off topic, but I always wanted to ask you this question because that's something I've always wanted to know. 
as an actor, you make choices for the character, but you're also directed by a director as to what those choices can be as well. And that that's the relationship with an actor and a director. Um, at the end of Man of Steel, killing Zod, that was a big deal for Superman fans because Superman really wasn't a murderer or a killer. Um, mm. And I was always just curious from your perspective what you thought of that because I know there was a lot of divisiveness and people were, you know, Snyder shouldn't have killed Zod, Superman wouldn't do that, but I loved that ending and I thought it was the necessary ending. What what were your personal thoughts on how he ended it and did you ever go to him with other ideas? No, I I, I didn't think there was any other way to end it really. I mean, Zod says it's either me or you. I'm not I'm not going to let you survive. I will kill you unless you kill me. Hmm. And that seemed sufficiently, you know, Greek to me, you know. I mean I honestly I was just so it was so amazing to me shooting that scene because I'm from Chicago or I started acting in Chicago anyway and um I was there in Union Station, which is like an iconic building in Chicago, in the same place they shot the stroller scene from The Untouchables. Yeah. I just kept looking around, trying to figure out where, <laughs> where was Andy Garcia? Where was Sean Connery? Where was Kevin Costner? You know, where were they all standing? So that was my main preoccupation when I was shooting that scene. But uh, I don't really, I, I've seen other actors that feel more comfortable kind of going in screwing around with the script and the story. But I, I've never felt real comfortable with that unless there's something that's just glaringly nonsensical. I kind of keep my mouth shut because I'm not a writer. I couldn't write a screenplay to save my life. So I, I have a lot of respect for the script and, and I only go off it if I'm encouraged to by the director. You know, Michael, uh, speaking of Chicago, uh, I know you can't see me right now. I'm having some video issues, but I'm actually a reporter here in Chicago, and I've spoken to you here in Chicago uh, many times. And, you know, one of the, my favorite stories, and I think one of Chicago's favorite entertainment stories of the past few years, was the night of the Oscars, the night that The Shape of Water won Best mm. Picture. You weren't there, obviously. You were sort of at a, at a, a, a famous spot here in town, uh, and there's that picture of you actually watching it win Best Picture. And one mm. of the things that, that really struck me about that is that you've, you've never really sort of followed this trajectory that, that Hollywood says, okay, if you're going to be an actor and you're going to star in big movies that, that win awards, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And you've never really done that. I'm sort of curious, like, was it a conscious choice early in your career to say, you know what, I'm just in it for the craft. I don't really care about that, that aspect of it. Um, or, or was there a particular reason that you didn't want to go that night? Yeah. Well, you know, the owner of the alehouse uh, took that photo, Bruce, or one of the owners, I guess his Tobin, his ex-wife really is the owner. But anyway, he took the picture and he said, you, you have no idea what this is going to do. And I said, what are you talking about, Bruce? Who's going to care about that silly picture? And here I am. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I was in town honestly, because a show that I had directed was closing. And I had been gone uh, because I had been working on Little Drummer Girl and I had missed most of the run. And my cast, you know, this play ran through the winter in Chicago and it was a brutal winter. And, you know, people were getting sick. Uh, people were slipping on ice. I mean, my cast had just gone through hell to to do the show. And it was a very, it was a very popular show for the theater. And, and I felt like I owed it to them 
uh, to be there for the closing, which was in the afternoon. It was a matinee. So I went to the last performance and then we had a, a like a reception afterwards. And, and I told everybody how much I appreciated the hard work they had done. And then we had a little after party at the ale house. And um, mm. so it, but don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm phenomenally proud of the fact that I'm in the shape of water and I'm phenomenally proud of the fact that I worked with Guillermo and I don't take it lightly, not one bit, but, um, but I'm also very proud of the work I do yeah. in Chicago at, at my little theater company. So I did, and I, and I felt like I owed it to my people to be there. Cool. Michael, we've been lucky cool. enough to talk to a lot of different people on this podcast as they're working through this um, global pandemic and being in such an unusual situation. Uh, we spoke to a lot of writers and directors, and they're talking about how they've been able to stay busy uh, working on scripts. But I never really know, like with actors, what you guys are doing in order to pass the time uh, while you're in quarantine. And also, I'm just curious about the fact that when we're out of this, when things return to uh, normal uh, sort of business as usual, the types of stories that you're going to be interested in telling, if you'll look for material that is um, rooted in this really contemporary and unusual situation, or um, as a storyteller yourself, if you'd look for something that's so completely different, like a screwball comedy or some type of a sci-fi fiction type thing that takes you uh, completely out of this moment. Um, I'm just curious because you've touched on a lot of different subject materials over the years, what type of thing you'll want to look for when you're back to acting. You know, it's funny you bring this up because somebody, <clears throat> I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about Take Shelter and how how relevant it is right now. And I said, I appreciate that, but I felt like Take Shelter was relevant when I was making it. I mean, I feel like Take Shelter is relevant all the time. I realize that we're all feeling very fragile and vulnerable right now, but I'm always keenly aware, or I don't mean to sound like an arrogant ass, but I I, I, I seem to be keenly aware of just how fragile and uh, vulnerable we are all the time. Uh, this virus is not like a surprise to me and it's not a surprise to a lot of very educated people. Um, I, I'm not one of them, but I, I'm just saying I, I they're, they're confirming my darker fears and anxieties about life. So, um, and a lot of the work that I've done take shelter and otherwise has been fueled by that. So, um, you know, it's funny, a lot of people have been trying to encourage to generate content online, like, oh, do some, a show online or something. And I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do that. I don't, something about that feels, and I'm not poo-pooing on anybody who is doing it. God bless you, Godspeed, have fun. But to me, it seems a little disrespectful of the experience. I mean, I, I do think we needed to be put in a position where we genuinely understand how powerless we are and how fortunate we are to live on a planet that will facilitate our existence and how close we are to losing that. So I don't mind like not doing my little shows for a little while and letting that really sink in. Uh, that being said, Michael, I really do hope that you get back to it really soon. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you know, I was telling you, Michael, that you've worked with so many amazing filmmakers over your career. Uh, I, I'm a we- I'm weird. I-, I love you in Bad Boys too. I just love all the random things you've done because you you're in so many different movies. Um, I was curious uh, what your experience was like working with someone like a Michael Bay, but also are there filmmakers that you can't wait to work with? Are there ones that like are on your bucket list? And I and I'm sure you're not gonna like actively reach out to them and go, can I please work with you? But like, who would be like a dream? And was was Bay fun? I have to say, it was an extraordinary experience working with him. I definitely have some of the most interesting stories, you know, because people always want stories and I'm not a good story guy. Like I don't have a lot of anecdotes except about working with him. You know, he was a story, (laughs) he was a story factory. You just do something every day that just blow your mind. (laughs) I mean, that was more, honestly, that was more on Pearl Harbor than on, on bad boys too. He was, he kind of receded into the background a little bit more on Bad Boys too. I think just because Will and Martin are such gigantic personalities. On Pearl Harbor, he was working with a little, bunch of little dipshits who were just lucky to be there, so he could be yeah. really uh, <laughs> full full throttle, you know. But, uh, you know, I've, I've said time from time to time over the years how much I've wanted to work with David Lynch, but I, I don't really oh. think that's ever going to happen. What's your favorite Lynch movie? Oh boy, that's tough. Is it? Is it, it weird? I'm an Elephant Man or Blue Velvet. I love those. Are my two favorites. Yeah, no, those are those. I mean, I love. In a way, I'd have to say Eraserhead's my favorite. Even yeah. though, I don't mean to discount his. He's obviously done a, a lot of amazing work since then. I mean, Mulholland Drive, uh, probably. Yeah. But there's there's something about all of them that I love. I mean, I'll I'll sit and watch Inland Empire. Some people are like, I can't I can't make it. I'm like, well, too bad. I like it. So, <laughs> but um, yeah. Uh, you know, I was just about to start working with David O. Russell, which I was really curious about. Um, but then this the virus struck, so we're. But I'm hoping to get to that when when we're back up and going. Um, but I have, I've gotten to work with a lot of really great people. I'm really lucky. Um, I'd like to work with Paul Thomas Anderson, but who wouldn't? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I'm sure you love Phantom Thread. Phantom Phantom Thread in 70 millimeters is one of my favorite movie theater experiences ever. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and you know, I like working with, uh, Young folks, I still like you know. I mean, I I should I should kind of be careful when I say that it's not like you know they're not always going to be Jeff Nichols you know but uh, but that that's the most exciting experience of my career up to this point is having found Jeff and having worked with him from the ground up. Midnight special is a masterpiece. Oh, it, it just thank is. you, Kevin. It just thank is, you. man. Yeah. Thank you. I know we have to let you go, uh, but you, did you say earlier that the quarry actually yeah. has a release date? Did it get picked up for distribution? Yeah, Lionsgate picked it up uh, before the festival, and they're releasing it. Um, and, you know, I appreciate it. As much as I I do want it to play in a theater someday, um, 
you know, there's certain movies you, you keep hearing all these stories about movies pushing and I get it, but it, it is nice to give people something new. Uh, you know, you shouldn't punish the people. It's not their fault. You know, give them something to, yeah. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the Real Blend podcast, yeah. man. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us yeah, and we'll yeah, let everybody exactly. know about the quarry, uh, how they can check it out and uh, stay up to date with everything that you're doing as we get through this. Yeah, no worries. Great seeing you, Michael. You too. We want to thank Michael Shannon for joining us uh, from his home. It's still unusual to get these celebrities um, during this time because hey, Sean. they're trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure it out. Yes, Kevin. I noticed in the edit that Gabe did for Michael Shannon, he left out a very important and pivotal question that I, oh. I, I, I just don't know why he left it out. So can, can okay. we tell our audience what it was? Sure. I, I guess so. Yeah, I'll leave it to you because well, I, I'm not sure where this is going. But yeah, Michael Shannon, <laughs> yeah. He, he revealed his to us his favorite director. Do you remember this? No, no, I don't. Maybe I logged off the call because there was a point where we all logged off and you were still on with Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Just talking to each other. Yeah. So, what was it? Uh, I th- I, his answer for his favorite movie of all favorite time track. was was Christopher the Macquarie. Oh. Just... Thank you. I'm so glad we have video. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Come on, the Macquarie, the Quarry is no, perfect. No, I, it's literally I it. perfect. I get it. No, I get it. Why That's did that pretty... one get crickets? That one got really bad crickets. Why? <laughs> it really deserved it. Uh, we have news to get to. Um, we have some news. Really exciting, yeah, we have really exciting news to get to. Oh, no, I mean news. like in the world of uh, of movie <laughs> entertainment. News too. News. That's what I so here we said. go. <laughs> Uh, Dune is dropping a ton of images, and if I'm being totally candid, uh, I don't really get what the excitement is yet. Yet. I mean, it's Denis, and he's doing Dune, and that's great, but Jake, I need you to tell me why these images, beyond the fact that it's just this amazing cast, they're just wearing spacesuits. It's fine, but, like, I didn't look at them and be like, whoa, reinvention of cinema. What am I What am I missing out that, on? That, that logo on your shirt is just a, a picture of an imaginary movie that doesn't exist. Well, yes. No, I know. But, I mean, I, I'm looking at the images. What are they? What's important just, about them? I just think everything sort of, it's making me look at, because when you read a book, you have a vision in your mind, right? And in a certain way, it's, it's kind of been construed by uh by the 80s film which like that and then and then i was a really big fan of the sci-fi channel they did like that four-part miniseries so that's mm-hmm. kind of whenever i was reading like that's sort of what i had in my mind yeah and then denny put out these images and i go oh that's exactly it it, it it to me it perfectly fit in my mind what frank herbert would have wanted okay like it it, it almost corrected all the images in my mind and made me go oh that's a hundred percent because you see times, frank herbert's son what he said no. no, what did he say? Oh, I'll uh, continue, Jake, and I'll, I'll pull well, it up and well, read it. Well, basically, you know, the the downside of reading a book ahead of a movie is that the movie in no way compares to the images that you contrived in your head. And then whenever I saw those images, I just went, "Oh, that just looks so much cooler than that." And granted, it's a lot of more like the character pieces, and maybe it's just that I'm excited because a lot of times the danger of casting these big names like uh, uh you know uh, Timothy and 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 Zendaya and, and Josh Brolin and Oscar Isaac is that you're seeing them in these big movies yeah and yeah. i looked at these pictures and then instantly forgot i'm like oh it's you know it it's 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 Paul Atreides you know it's all the you know um so i think it excited me that just in a matter of frames they were able to overcome celebrity 
and uh, and sort of encapture what I think Frank Herbert intended. So this so is we, Frank Herbert's son about who those wrote, exact who images. went on to write several Dune novels after right. after, after, after so his th- dad died. So this is Brian Herbert. Uh, this is a tweet quote: "Dune fans, I hope you're all as excited as I am to see these early glimpses of the new Dune movie. My father would be incredibly proud." Okay. Isn't that that's the biggest like really that's the biggest cosign? So the yeah. cast is incredible, and that's what I kind of took away. Like every new photo that dropped was just another name that I was like, "Oh, I forgot they're in this." Oh my god, I forgot they're in this. So obviously Timothy Chalamet is playing Paul, the main character. Uh, Zendaya, you mentioned. Rebecca Ferguson is in it. Uh, Oscar Isaac, who we got a picture of. Jason Momoa, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista, Josh Brolin, um, Javier Bardem, Charlotte Rampling. So, I mean, the cast is off the charts. Skarsgård? Yeah. <clears throat> I said him. Um, and then they confirm. Christian Bale playing the uh, sandworm. The sandworm, putting on all those pounds to play the 45,000 pounds. <laughs> is the sandworm a legitimate thing? Like, is that a big sequence? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, it's... my God. That's going to be. All right. So it's funny. Jake and I uh, started reading Dune at the same time, and then I stopped reading it, <laughs> and Jake powered through. I do need to circle back around to it. Gabe uh, will we'll mention, he doesn't speak, but is a huge fan of Dune. It is his most anticipated film of the year. And so uh, we're starting to see photos, which could mean trailer? Maybe a trailer coming up soon. Well, uh, those images were. I, I'm I'm as excited as Jake is. I have not read Dune, but um, I think a lot of it has to do with who's working on it. Denise specifically, and obviously Greg Fraser, the DP. I'm I'm just super interested to see what they're going to do with this. I know mm-hmm. that Lynch's movie in the '80s was not well received, and I, I I know that you know what Denise is doing now that we know this is doing two Dune films, right? So the first half of Dune is going to come out in December. And I'm right. genuinely excited to see where that goes. Now, the interesting thing about what Jake just said about not seeing actors and seeing characters, I felt the same way. I mean, you watch Blade Runner 2049. I'm seeing God. I'm not, I'm not seeing Gosling. I'm seeing the character. I'm seeing mm-hmm. For, I'm seeing Ford's character. Uh, I think that Denis, it's so funny as I've been sitting home a lot. Uh, I've been rewatching a lot of films and, and, and focus on focusing on these films from more of a story perspective perspective than a technical perspective because i'm a big technical fan and i love watching films from a filmmaking standpoint but i've been learning a lot about story as i've been home like i rewatched the matrix last night and and i'll go i'll take this back to doom and i'll tell you why what i mean with the matrix every action scene while cool is designed to push the story forward mm-hmm. so for example when neo's dodging bullets that's a cool sequence but it but think about what that scene is telling you. It's telling you it's inching you towards him being the one. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a massive arc for the character. It is a cool scene. But at the end of the day, it is a story point that moves him forward. For sure. And I think that Denis is so good at, at world building and story. Um, you know, Sicario had some incredible shots, as did prisoners. But when you think about Denis work. Aside from Blade Runner, which I think was more probably more his most visual pleasing film, uh, I feel that he is such a great storyteller. Arrival, when I look back on Arrival, I think of the emotion, not the visual aspect of it. It's all into one thing. I don't know, dude. And, the, the the circles and the way oh, they no, communicated no. and everything. Don't get me wrong. The visuals for Arrival are incredible. I guess the point I'm making is there are times where style becomes more important than substance. And I think in this particular case with someone like Denis, what I'm interested in Dune is the story and the characters. I think he's going to handle the characters really well. And then everything else is just going to play into it. Deacons' cinematography in Blade Runner plays into that storyline. It's gorgeous, but it also plays into the story. So I think what makes me excited about Dune specifically is Denis. 
And I think that he is going to build these worlds and make us care. And it's going to look amazing, but it's actually going to mean something. And that's what I'm excited about. Also, it's just going to be fun. Like Denise films are just fun. Prisoners? I mean, yeah. yeah. Just laugh a minute. You know, you just strap in and just feel good for the whole family. Laugh. Yeah. Explain, explain the context (laughs) of that joke to people that don't follow you on Twitter. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to harp on it because it's too much. But there was just like a a film Twitter joke about the first shot of Timothy Chalamet. And they were like, oh, good. I was afraid that Dune was going to be fun. And it's, it's a, that joke doesn't work for two main reasons. A, it shows a total lack of awareness for what Dune is as a source material. And B, it, it, for someone who claims that they're in film Twitter, which is disgusting as it is, uh, it shows a total I lack of awareness for the Twitter. type of... No, I don't think you are either. Um, it shows a, a lack of awareness of the type of movie that Denis delivers. Like, he just doesn't... Yeah. He's not a popcorn blockbuster guy, yeah. you know? Well, he's intelligent, and he, he explores the gray areas, and... He's a visual master, and, and that's what he does. So. so this gets into a very interesting discussion and that we are having yesterday that I find interesting. Um, will Dune be financially successful? And it's an interesting perspective because you have two parts of this film coming out. And we were discussing yesterday that, that you know, Chalamet is big in certain circles, but is yeah. he big enough to carry a film like this? And it's interesting. Like, I think Chalamet might be at the perfect point in his career where he's not too famous where this will work. And maybe this will be the launch. Um, I just, I, I, I do wonder though, Blade Runner 2049 didn't make a ton of money for right. what it costs, right? So Blade Runner is a, gi- I'm sorry, Dune's a gigantic budget. So if the first half doesn't do well, what happens, right? We were discussing this yesterday. Whether uh, they commit to finishing it or not. I, I think they have to commit. Or is to he done with it? it. I think, but, I think but we he were shot talking about that. Did they shoot it all at one time and split I, it in the middle? I think he shot everything. I, I bet you. you Denise shot the entire film and he's okay. just splitting it into two. I okay. think. I don't Impossible. know. Do you think it's going to be two three-hour films or two two-hour films? Probably two forty-five each. That's each. my guess. Wasn't was forty-nine was. Because also keep in mind, even though it was planned to be three films, um, Jackson was still shooting Lord of the Rings by the time Fellowship came out. Like they were still right over there working on it. Well, well, that's an interesting one. But I also don't. Do you think Denis knew he was making two movies when he was shooting Dune? Or did it he sounds decide like it. It, later? Yeah. it sounds like he said he w- he wasn't going to take it unless they let yeah. him tell it over multiple chapters. It, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like a Kill Bill situation. Not to start a, a, a fight, <laughs> but it doesn't sound like a situation where the studio is saying, "Hey, you got to split well, this." But I two. heard what happened is that he really wanted to make his favorite uh, Johnny Depp movie. He was going to oh. remake oh. his favorite Johnny Depp movie. Oh. Hold on a second, and it it fell through. So he ended up just taking this on instead, which is weird because he wasn't very passionate about it. He really was passionate about doing his favorite Johnny Depp movie. So Denis wants to remake his favorite Johnny Depp movie. He wanted to. Yeah. But then he couldn't get the rights to it. It's called uh, Benny and Dune. <laughs> That's good. So See? a story broke. Charity uh, laugh. See? Uh, oh, thank you. Story broke earlier this week that Trolls, um, which circumvented the theatrical release and is one of the only films to do this. Uh, although Disney now has Artemis Fowl going to their Disney plus series, uh, trolls world tour is claiming that it is the uh, best VOD release of all time. And they cited no real numbers to back it up. So we're a little bit skeptical and Jake okay, in particular, but, but who likes no, to be the journalist just, on the show. It, it, it sh- like, honestly, <laughs> and, and, and please, please correct me, Kevin. 
it shocks me that you're skeptical of this, yet you were always you so um, you were always so accepting huh. of Netflix's numbers. I have but a, you're skeptical. I mean, I'm skeptical of everything because I don't believe anybody. But but you, but what is the difference between this and Netflix numbers? Great question, Jake Hamilton. Those um, are the ones I ask. There are two completely different uh, uh, <laughs> sides of the story. So Netflix, when they release their numbers, they say 34 million people. I feel watched. like I just opened Pandora's box. No, 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 no. This is actually a very interesting discussion. So Netflix, when they released their numbers, 34 million people watched Tiger King in the first 10 days. Okay, that's a a statement they put out. So the reason Jake was being skeptical about that, and we had a whole argument on our show on some earlier episodes, was what does that number mean? Did they actually watch all of it? Did they hit play for one minute and turn it off? We don't know the, the measuring of that. I know Nielsen obviously is involved now with their ratings, and it's a lot has changed since then. That's a completely different situation than I'm referring to with this case. Um, I, it's funny because I feel like in this case, there's nothing to compare it to. So there's no movie that has ever dropped on VOD that I know of, a major theatrical film that dropped on VOD instead sure. of going to theaters. Sure. So think about this. In the when, middle of a pandemic when we're all in isolation. Exactly. So, but also yeah. think yeah, about- Yeah, but like, if you're number one, you're number one. It doesn't, like, doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Like, if, if you're in a situation where you were able to do it, why not claim? I mean, uh, honestly, like, Kevin Smith does that all the time. When he when he does his like two movies, her theater, no, I know, I yeah, know. her theater, and that's how he's in the top ten. Like you take but, advantage of the circumstances and work the statistics in your favor. But here's the here's the point I'm making. So the 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 article headline of saying it had the the biggest VOD purchases ever. That is true. Uh, yes, I don't. It's not that I'm not disputing that. I'm saying it's wrong to make it seem like it's special, and I'll tell you why. Because if you put Black Widow out or No Time to Die on VOD tomorrow, those numbers would blow away Trolls. So my point is, when Trolls is the first to do it, yeah. there's nothing to compare it to. Oh, yeah, so I see what you're saying. There's, there's, what you're there's, saying. So, for example, uh, there's no other major film that I can but think of. But they're not of. the first to do it. They're just the first to have these favorable circumstances. No, no, no. They're, they're not, not the first VOD movie. No, that's not, not what I'm saying. VOD. I no. know what Kevin's saying. A movie that was supposed to go to theaters that went to VOD instead. So think about it this way, Jake. It's circumstances all, in its favor. Hold on, it's still hold on. a VOD release. Let, let, me finish, let me finish this one part. So Bad Boys for Life comes out on VOD, right? Right. That already had a theatrical run where they made over $370 million, whatever it was. Okay. My point is by the time it gets to VOD, a lot of people who wanted to see it have already seen it. So the numbers when it hits the VOD aren't going to spike like Trolls did because nobody sure. has seen Trolls. So my no, point, I, mean, I, I get your point, but I don't understand why you're faulting a studio for. No, I'm not faulting a, a studio I, for I, taking for like I think taking you're the statistics me. And, and and like, but like you're I would do that me. too. I I would take their no. I I get your point. Like because no other VOD release has ever had these particular set of circumstances to take advantage of. But like, why not take that and 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 then and then spout the numbers out? Like, why Here, not? Here's the point. Universal is not wrong. And I, if I was the company, I would do the exact same thing. It is a it is a completely accurate statistic. My point is, is that it should be taken with a grain of salt because it, it, it does not actually indicate that Trolls is some gigantic film that broke massive records because of how popular it is. My point about this is if any other film hit VOD like Trolls did, Bond, yeah. Widow, all these films, the numbers would be so astronomical compared to what Trolls got downloaded. So my point is, yes, I'm not calling Universal out. 
They are accurate in reporting it, and rightfully so. My point is the headline is misleading. It is but not you're, you're really also the guy who is clamoring for movie theaters to open for yeah. Christopher Nolan so that Tenet could have the biggest box office opening of all time. I like, never said that, that not, actually. How is I that never not said taking? That. That's kind of what you've been First saying for like the last four weeks. I never said that. Uh, you're, you're, now you're taking box office into account. My my thoughts on Tenet and the, the record and tape will show. I said it would be amazing if Tenet came out and was the movie that reopened film and, and cinemas. I never say anything about it being the biggest box office opening of all time. I'm just saying that that statistic is is accurate but misleading in my but, personal but, I mean, opinion. But aren't box office statistics the same thing? Like, like sure. uh, we don't take uh, inflation into account every time we report the biggest box office weekend of all time. Like, Sean, it's, am I crazy? It's, it's the circumstances. It's the, it's the circumstances in which like they are released. Like we're like no no one said Avengers Endgame is the highest grossing film of all time, except not really because really it's gone with the wind. Like you kind of just, just roll like I just think we're we're four minutes longer on trolls than I ever wanted to no, be. But that, this is an interesting <laughs> in the history of this show. And, um, but I, and I we feel weird that I'm on this side of the argument because usually I'm the one that's like no screw the studios for putting out those numbers. But like you, you can't like like you can't criticize one and not criticize the other. I have nothing against Universal. I'm talking about that headline itself is not really the way it seems. Yeah, that's I think all that's I'm saying. Well, I want to. Well, get- then is Avengers Endgame really the highest grossing film of all time? Yes, it, technically it is. Yes, yes. Well, then is. technically Trolls is the biggest no. VOD opening of all time. You're 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 thinking so much about logistics and and details. I'm telling you that the headline itself does not tell the full truth. All right, let's get on to a ray of hope uh, that we might be able to foster Kevin's belief that Tenet may save us all. Uh, right before we started to record, Cinemark, not one of the major chains, but one of the mid tier chains, uh, announced a plan to essentially reopen their uh, outlets in uh, July. And July 1st is the date that they gave them. And they said it's not going to be a all of our business, you know, flip the switch and here we go type thing. They described it more as a toe in the water. And they they used as a plan uh, in the story I read on Deadline uh, factors that we've been talking about on this show, which is they would open with a um, all star lineup from their library the first two weeks to get people back into theaters slowly um, and to get them used to being open and operating with crowds. And there's probably going to be even some more stipulations in place about uh, where you can sit and how they're going to control the seating and some of the other factors that we brought up on other episodes of the show in terms of maybe if each house is at half capacity, you put uh, more theaters or more uh, movies on more screens so that you can get close to the capacity numbers that you would be programming because especially they're not going to get to a point where we have a lot of movies competing against each other, a lot of new releases right off the bat because the slate would be slow to go. Um, But they said... If they opened on July 1st, it would allow them to do a few weeks of retrospective programming and then be ready for Tenant on July 17th. And I knew that there was one boy in Washington, D.C. who was so happy to hear that Cinemark uh, is preparing for the opening of Christopher Nolan's Tenant. Of course they are. Uh, I will throw it to Jake for starters, though, and say, Jake, is this realistic to you? I don't, because movie theaters do not set the timeline. Like like a, 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 a business 
cannot come forward and say, here's when the world is going to go back to normal. That's not how it works. Like the businesses are at the mercy of basically like the direction that the world is moving in. And I think it is way too premature. Like there's a reason that government officials right now are not saying here's when you can go back outside because like nobody knows. So for a business to say, here's when our doors are going to reopen and here's when you can come back and start doing normal real life things. It's too premature. Like I get the hope. And if they were like, like this idea that like, okay, like it would be great if, but like you can't. And if you want to start planning for it, sure, I guess. But like well, that's, you, that's you a, don't set the timeline. That's exactly it though. I think they have to have a plan in place. Yep. I think they have to have a, a date circle that they realistically would like to get to um, and to start to see how the numbers trend, obviously. Uh, so that way, if we get close to middle of June and, and things are, are winding down or we have a better handle on, on it than we do at the moment, your plan is implemented. And it's funny, I watch a lot of sports talk and uh, things on ESPN, and I watch PTI, the part of the interruption, all the time. And they were having this very exact debate where one guy was totally into the idea of baseball having a plan, which is something we were talking about in our text thread. Uh, and the other guy saying it's it's too soon to even have this discussion. But I fall into the camp of it's smart to have a plan. You know, it's smart to have um, a, a yes, we're going to need a couple of weeks to ramp up. But but right now, the the first movie that has a release date is still uh, Nolan and Warner Brothers. Everybody else has sort of moved beyond that. Even SpongeBob, which was going to be in that July, late July, has moved into August 7th. Now Mulan is still uh, the end of July. But but it's starting to feel like it's solidifying. Now, Jake, I say, I know you say that the business can't control it, but I brought up something on the show the other day and it was kind of scoffed at, but then they, these guys said it in their story. They're losing so much money that they may just have to open, you know, for people who want to come so that they, that they're making something, you know, let alone, uh, you know, versus, you know, but staying if, if major cities are are outlawing or, or forbidding or whatever the word is you want to use. Yeah. Gatherings of 10 or more people. Then how can you do that? Like like a restaurant. Hey, you're in assuming Chicago that's right now, the case can't. in three months. I'm not saying it's not going to. I don't know. I, I, uh, I don't know. It's three hard months, because the situation the, changes week to week. It really does. Yeah. But I mean, I, I mean, keep in mind, like. You know, we, we've seen one country do this before, like open, literally open up their movie theaters with this exact yeah. same plan and they ended up shutting them down again. Right. Yeah, true. Kev. I mean, I listen, I mean, this all comes down to everything we've been discussing on the show, which is logic versus realistic mindsets here. Um, I mean, Jake, logically, I think that logically that is probably the right mindset to have. Um, I am just choosing to go the other route with my mind. I just I, I want to believe that. And not that you don't, I'm not saying you don't want to believe this, but I'm saying I just want to believe in my head that we will somehow be out of this by the end of May and we all start kind of integrating back into normal life in June. And that makes a July 17th release possible. And right now it's only April, what is it, April 15th or whatever today's date is. We're we're three months out from Tenant's release. So (laughs) my only thing that I want to say is, and going back to Tenant, I just would love to see Tenant reopen uh, the movie business. I think it's the perfect movie to do it. I have a question, because Kevin said that, and we know that for sure. If if the movie theaters are allowed to open uh, in time for Tenant, but not in New York and L.A. Hmm. They do not open Tenant. You do they not open drop. Tenet? 
You know, they do not. You do not drop no. a $200 million Christopher Nolan movie without every possible person in the country, every possible person in the world being able to see it. Also, so LA, markets one and two, no. Also, no, LA is where, is where Nolan lives and where Nolan uh, uh, works on his movies. He tests his dailies at the uh, AMC University City Walk, uh, Universal City Walk, which is the best theater ever. If you ever go there, sit in K-16. It's amazing. Uh, Eight-story IMAX screen. Um, but I don't know. I, I, It's an interesting point, Sean. I just... I, part of me, I just... Because I, I'm with you. It feels like like a large portion might be able to be open, but right? you might not have but, two but of that's the biggest the thing cities too, is in our they're, country. They're, they've talked about staggering these things. And then yeah. again, that not just staggering the country, but staggering the things that people will be able to go out and do. Yeah. And unfortunately, the article that Kevin sent us yesterday that um, from New York Times Magazine where uh, Zeke Emanuel, who is a bioethicist and uh, an oncologist, um, basically said that like, yes, we are going to stagger the events that people, the things that people are able to go out and do but unfortunately, the realm of entertainment, and within that realm, we're talking concerts and sporting events and, yes, movies, is going to be, unfortunately, very, very low, if not dead last in the list of priorities to but get up and running again. According to that same article, though, that would mean movie theaters aren't going to open for 18 months, like fall I, of 2021. I, I think that that that's a little probably, extreme. I think that's extreme. Um, but then again, I also think that, that a movie like Tenet needs to have a guaranteed maximum possible audience in July. I'm not saying it, it would have no audience, but a maximum audience, and you're not going to have a maximum audience by Jake, July. Jake, it could be on every screen. Yeah. It, what if in a Tenet, 24 screen. Yeah. It Tenet could be. is that movie. There's they, no competition. On, on 717, Nolan reopens. I mean, again, I know Jake talks about the idea of rolling things out. Maybe cinemas reopen a little, like a week or two early. But imagine Nolan going. Hey, I I come stand back. by. We let's make a bet. Come back. What's what could be the bet? I don't know. Let's think about it. But like I'm I'm standing by my stance. You're standing by your stance. Let's make a bet. All right. Let's All right. think about it. We'll come back around. Yeah. All right. So one other um, aspect of our industry that is grappling with uh, these delays is the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, officially, it was announced that it is not happening in June as it normally would. Um, but it's going to be looking elsewhere in 2020. Still holding out the hope that a uh, semblance of the Cannes Film Festival can be held. Uh, the Cannes chief, Thierry Frimaud, Thierry Frimaud, uh, reveals that there have been ongoing discussions with the Venice Film Festival artistic director about doing something together if the Cannes Film Festival is canceled, uh, while other festivals have also reached out to discuss partnerships. That is per variety. Now, at the moment, um, San Diego Comic-Con has not canceled yet either, but um, that feels wildly optimistic because uh, I just don't see that many groups of people coming back together. But I have spoken to studio representatives who talked about Comic-Con specifically saying from their perspective, they feel like they really need it. Like they need an event that would allow them to promote uh, the movies that they have coming. Um, but again, that sort of gets back to you need that certainty in place. You know, they're going to have a place to screen those movies. But I've heard from multiple studios that they would not be opposed to still holding on to Comic-Con because they just need a big event that allows them to talk about some of the films that are coming. So I don't know. I, I mean, we, the three of us tend to look at uh, something like Toronto. It's one that we go to and cover uh, on a regular basis. Uh, let me ask you guys this right now. How comfortable would you even feel about going to Toronto in September? I don't think Personally. we're going to. We're not going to Toronto in September. We're you don't not, think I, don't, so? I don't think we're, I don't think we're leaving the country for a while. 
Really? Personally. I mean, I have no idea, but I I can't imagine international travel being a thing. If they, if they said you could, how would you feel about it? I'd go. Would you? hundred percent. I feel like I'd go to like a Toronto. For some reason, I'm uncomfortable about going to like London. Oh, well, London, that's out of the question. We, we won't, I, I don't think we're going back to London for a long time. For a long time, you know it's uh, weird. I um I would be okay going to Toronto. I'm not sure how comfortable I'd be going to Comic Con. Okay, because too many people. Just because it's yeah. a large group of people, like Comic Con's not happening. The the, the the most like cliche. The this is a horrible cliche, but like not like always the most hygienic people in the world. I guess. <laughs> okay, no, I come on I'm now. Joking. I'm joking. My people I'm there. Just reminds me of uh there was a time when we went uh we were at the water park here in Charlotte uh, Carowinds. And there's a um, area of the water park that, that my family, for whatever reason, loves. It's the big wave pool. It's a huge pool. Uh, and every t- five to ten minutes, they start up waves in huge um, groups. But it's like it's like a person's stew. It's like a stew yeah. of bodies. And I don't know why my family likes it. And Michelle's always saying, like, come on in, come on in. So I, you know, I get in with all my weird OCDs. And there's this one time where I went up on a wave... <gasps> And I came down on some guy's hairy back and his hairy back, like literally my face. Like it's a long like game this. Polly. It is oh, is that what happened? Long game Polly? Oh my God. Yeah. He's playing basketball and that guy's hair goes into Ben Stiller's mouth and he's like dripping sweat out of his yeah. mouth. And his face like slides along. That happened to me in a wave pool. Yeah. Yes. And that wave pool, not unlike San Diego Comic-Con uh, on its best day. So that's... The I didn't that mean that was a that was a joke. I did not mean to insult anyone that goes to San Diego Comic Con. Like, don't turn yes. it into a whole thing. All right, this week in movies uh, or not at movie theaters on streaming. Instead, I want to kick off with Underwater because Kev just saw it. Kev, worth seeing. I was super interested in this film. So last night, Lauren said we're going to watch Underwater. Um, the production value on this film is insane. It's like a ninety million dollar film. I, I, I had no idea it was that big. Um, we're talking practical sets, like sets I haven't seen in films in a long time. This thing was massive, and it was a smaller film that came out in January that I felt like nobody talked about. And I, mm. and I, I listen. At the end of the day, I, I think that it has some script issues. I think some of the acting was was you know not up to par with what I would expect from a movie of that size. But I'll tell you right now, if you're into just like a a ninety minute intense ride, the whole movie takes place underwater. Um, in, in 36,000 feet on the, on the, I think it's in the deepest trench in the world. Um, and it's a pretty horrifying concept, essentially an earthquake hits and it, you see this gigantic platform that they're all working in down below, just start getting crushed. Like, Ooh. like, like, uh, like grass, like just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you stepped on grass, it would just go simply just go down. That's that's how their their structure started happening because the pressure is so brutal down there. So one of the things I wanted to give credit for to the filmmakers was they set up this great thing in the beginning of the movie that always makes you remember that there's water and pressure around you, even though you're in a building or in, even though you're inside. There's still that feeling. And I think that's a great thing a director can do at the beginning of a film is set that tone. Um, so I found the film to be engaging. It's st- extremely intense, very violent. There's a, there's a death in this movie, going back to our PG-13 R-rated discussion, that I think is genuinely going to horrify me for years. This is like a PG-13 film. But it, in this particular scene, I, I, mean, I guess I can talk about it, right? It's been out for a while. Why now. not? 
Sure. Um, no, okay. we don't don't ruin it because I, I not, won't I'd actually say, like to see it. I won't say who the character is or what happened. I just want to explain the the violent aspect of it. It's pretty wicked. There's a there's a guy in a suit. He's wearing his like his his suit so that way he doesn't get crushed by the pressure so they can oh, go yeah. outside and walk. This is not a spoiler. No, keep so going. I just, like a, I just don't want to hear it. Keep going. Not like keep a talking. jacket and tie suit. It's a big suit. So there's a moment where the where where the character gets stuck and some kind of monster is trying to drag the character back towards the monster and away from his friends or coworkers. And he's dragging him with so much force that you're the, the, the close up on the screen is the helmet and just the face screaming as he's trying to get pulled back towards his friends while this monster's pulling him. You literally see his face disfigure and smush oh. and get oh. pulled through the suit. And the entire thing just turns blood red. But uh. the, the image of his face going from a normal face to a digital squished side version of it yeah. was so terrifying because it all happens in one shot. Yeah. And I have no idea how they did it, but it is nasty. <laughs> tell, tell me that's not intriguing. Tell me you don't want to no, watch the movie now. I do, I do want to see that movie, yeah. yes. Now based on it. that. We yeah. should actually do, uh, did, we do, did we do like a kills blend? Did we do like a worse kills? I forget. We, oh, kill blend's a good one. Killbone's a pretty a good, good one. one. Yeah. All right. Anyway, Fantasy Island, uh, Jeff Wadlow and um, Jason Bloom. Anybody catch up with Fantasy Island? No, I just heard it was so bad. I did too. Yeah, I heard really bad things about it. Um, we did have Reed Morano, the director, on our episode uh, earlier this year talking about the rhythm section, which is available on VOD. Blake Lively, uh, Jude Law. I enjoyed that film a lot. I thought Blake Lively did a really good job transitioning over into uh, action role. So make sure you go back and revisit our conversation with her. There's a great, great Warner uh, in that movie uh, that stays in the passenger seat with uh, Blake Lively as she tries to ex- uh, escape. If we did, oh, very funny, Gabe, very funny. Uh, Wendy is coming to VOD on April 17th. Jake and I are split on this one. It's a Peter Pan retelling. Um, I was totally enchanted by it. Uh, Jake has no heart. So he didn't see any reason to. No, to I, 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 I had a hard the first 74 times I saw this story. <laughs> well, Ben Zeitland uh, came on our show and told me all the reasons why the movie is wonderful. And so I was glad that I did the interview. A lot of people come on this show and talk about why their movies are wonderful. They do. Yes, very true. Including... So, so tell me, tell me how good Bloodshot was. Oof. Not very good. <laughs> it was not very good. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, we... Gabe. Is that, is that crossing the line? Bloodshot the last... was awful. Movie is Endings Beginnings, which is Drake Dormu. Drake Dor- Dormu. Um, he did a movie a while back called. It had Felicity Jones in it and Star Wars. No, he did not do Rogue One. Unfortunately, uh, this one has Shailene Woodley. He makes these sort of artsy, poetic love story ones. But I'm intrigued to see what Endings Beginnings is. Comes to VOD on 417. Uh, finally, coming to Amazon Prime, The Lighthouse. Gabe's favorite movie of all time. You didn't uh, like me, uh, me lobster? You can revisit Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe talking about the farts <laughs> and going mad. And what he a, would do with a steak. A lighthouse I will, together. I will never forget interviewing <laughs> Willem Dafoe for some Disney Plus movie. And he was sitting next to his co-star. And I, I, it's like this film about dogs and it was like nothing to do with the lighthouse and i had seen the lighthouse the day before so my last two films i watched were lighthouse and then this g-rated dog film he was doing for disney plus they couldn't be more different in 
the in thematic. So I get up. I think I've told the story, but I, I left the room and I, I turned around. I said, Mr. Defoe, if you don't mind me asking, are those farts real? <laughs> and he said, what did he say? He said something along the lines of like, some of them were real and some of them were added, but his response was much funnier than now that I'm thinking about it. So I'm bombing while telling the story, but he did respond to that. <laughs> cool story, bro. Yeah, cool story. I got nothing else to say except for he said some of them are real. Move well, on. Robert Eggers also joined our show to talk about how great the lighthouse is. So you can go back and find that episode also in our archives. So that brings us to the blend game. Um, and we are playing this week uh, Tony Scott blend in honor of the late great director of so many fantastic uh 90s 2000s or 80s i think his career yeah. to the 80s too yeah 80s yeah. 90s um action movie uh films a lot of them with denzel washington i realize how often he and denzel collaborated on films uh over the years and we definitely miss tony's contributions it's weird that we have a top gun movie coming out uh, in top gun maverick it's not gonna be directed by tony uh and when we were not to name drop sitting with quentin tarantino he told us that he talked to Tom Cruise and thought it was strange that uh, that Tom Cruise was coming back without Tony Scott. And Tom Cruise told Quentin Tarantino that it was the script that had won him over. And so that's why we're going to see Maverick. If uh, those two were screen. talking, do you think it was potentially about like ever collaborating? Well, sh- I mean, Cruise was supposed to be in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. So it was probably during all of that. So yeah, that's right. uh, we took away the caveat that Kevin couldn't pick True Romance. <laughs> So let's find out what he went with uh, instead, because we know True Romance is, is his favorite film of all time, or one of them at least. Yeah. Is it your favorite of all time? Yeah, I have two, and I'm, I don't mind cheating. It's Terminator Two and True Romance. Those are okay. right on the same playing field for me. Um, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one because my obvious answer is True Romance. Um, it, I, I'll take one second to tell you if you haven't seen it, it's one of the greatest casts ever. No one saw it in theaters. It bombed. Uh, I my favorite thing to do is when talking to people about movies is bring that up and they go, what, what the, what the heck is that? And then you get to tell someone about that movie. That's so special because do people it's not a, know what, and this isn't a sarcastic question. No. Do people not know what true romance is. True romance is a, in, and it's a super hidden gem. No one, first of all, no one saw it. I mean, it eventually gained a momentum later on when Tarantino got more famous and people went back and, you know, I remember when I was in school, it's so funny. I actually have these right here. Um, I, I would, I was re- I used to read these all the time when I was uh, um, a few years back because this is the original scripts that they wrote. So True Romance, Quentin's script was actually uh, nonlinear, and Clarence dies in Quentin's script. And then oh. this is a hell of a script if you haven't read it. Um, nice. it's, the story behind Natural Born Killers is so interesting because he wrote a screenplay for it, and Stone did his own thing with it and gave Tarantino a story credit. But if you actually get a chance to read Quentin's actual Natural Born Killers script before. The Oliver Stone thing Wait, is pretty interesting. I got to ask you a question about about uh, True Romance before you move on to your yeah. actual pick. You and Lauren went to some uh, fan event, <laughs> though, didn't you? Like, yeah. did, was that decently attended? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. We stayed in the room. Um, so it, it was the Safari Inn, which is where uh, Clarence and Alabama go in the movie after uh, essentially they're getting ready to do a drug deal with Michael Rappaport's character and the big time uh, movie producer about the uh, the cocaine they have in their in their suitcase and they go to this hotel safari inn and there's a they're there for a while but there's a very there's a pretty nasty scene there which is actually a scene I don't I try to skip over when I watch the film where her and Gandolfini fight even though she comes out triumphant at the end it's just a hard hard scene to watch um but that particular place you're referring to yeah they did like a 
uh, anniversary meetup and people got like Bronson Pinchot showed up um, uh, who's, uh, who has a great scene in True Romance if you haven't seen it where he gets pulled over by a cop and he sneezes or someone sneezes and cocaine flies all over his face um, but uh, yeah that is a very special thing Safarian my actual pick though is going to be Enemy of the State because uh, if we're talking personal so we're talking favorite here correct? Favorite. Yeah, favorite. Okay. so Enemy of the State was a weird film it came out at a time I'm trying to remember the day. I think it was 98, 98. And when I, when it came out, I was 14 and my uncle Steve uh, was visiting from New York. I'll never forget this. Cause you think about these random memories when, when it comes to films and he was visiting from Long Island, him and my, him and my aunt Char or aunt Char, however you want to say it. Um, and we all went to AMC Hampton town center that day to see enemy of the state, my brother, myself, my dad, and my uncle. Um, and I remember walking out of enemy of the state, just, I was so just like mesmerized by the way Tony Scott directs his films, the the pacing, the music, uh, the way he utilized colors and and angles. Um, he was it was just such a special movie for me. I I don't know that I had seen True Romance by that point because I was only fourteen. I think I was introduced to True Romance when I was in high school by my, by my friend Chris. So Enemy of the State was always my quintessential Tony Scott movie. I was never a big Top Gun fan. I don't really love the first Top Gun uh, personally. I like it. I just don't think I don't think it's a great film. I think it's very good. But um, Days of Thunder was more my speed. No pun intended. But anyways, anyway, that, that is a pun. That is a pun, Kevin. Yeah, but that was unintentional. One thing I hate about uh, Days of Thunder is that it starts um, on an outhouse and oh, it says yeah. Charlotte, North Carolina. And I don't remember. It's it? such an insult. It's like podunk. <laughs> And I mean, NASCAR is enormous here and it ended up shooting a lot of stuff at our track. And uh, but yeah, it's like opening on a southern outhouse and it's just Charlotte, North Carolina. It's so funny. I haven't seen Days of Thunder in a long time, but that was like my that was the movie of his. I remember growing up on. It does not hold up. Yeah, I'll go back and revisit it. But (laughs) Enemy of the State, if you haven't seen it, it's Will Smith, Gene Hackman, uh, Jason Lee makes a little cameo in there. It's it's an excellent story, but it's also it's also one of those movies where I, I always do you ever watch a film where a character gets in a situation and you just want so badly to go in there and tell everybody else around those characters that this character didn't do this thing that they're saying he did? So, like for example, like that to me is a very interesting thing a filmmaker can do. So when you're watching a story and somebody's like accused of something they didn't do or um, and we know that they didn't do it, the audience does. But everyone else in the, in the story thinks that that person did something wrong or illegal. Um, I always find that to be a very intense thing for an audience and a filmmaker transaction wise. Um, I always love that I'm on the edge of my seat rooting for the person's innocence to come about. And I think that that was an interesting thing about Enemy of the State was the storyline, the way the story plays out. Uh, Gene Hackman's so great in it. Will Smith's amazing in it. Uh, Dan Mendel shot it. Mendel's the J.J. Abrams' guy who shot like Star Trek and he did Star Wars uh, episode seven and nine. Uh, but he, it's just truly a wonderful film. Great soundtrack, great score. Really old, like it's really like, it's kind of Tony Scott before he started getting a little bit more extreme like the deja vu movies and they started getting, I'm so glad you said that because Tony Scott does fall into Tony Scott traps in those later films. But enemy of the state was prior to that. So it's interesting. If you watch Tony's career, like spy game, which was great. uh, uh, Enemy of the state, top gun, true romance, days of thunder. Those had a 
that Tony Scott feel, right? Yeah. But then he started venturing it. See, Man, Man on Fire. Oh, my God. He how, does, like, captions, how, you know, like. How, wait a second. I, I, I have to change my pick now. You're changing it to Man on Fire? I'm changing it to Man on Fire. You can't change it. It's how too did late. I forget about Man on Fire? Oh, I my did, God. I had to just listen to a 30-minute monologue about, about Enemy of the State, and now you're going to do another one? Follow I'm not going to do another one, but I will say this. I love <laughs> Enemy of the State, and that one has a more personal attachment to me because I was 14 with my uncle and my dad. But Man on Fire, if I'm being 100% honest, I, I, I would feel guilty about not uh, clearing this up on the episode, so I'm going to do it. Man on Fire is my favorite Tony Scott movie outside True Romance. No question now that I'm thinking about it more fully. Because um, I was actually harping on you more. You knew of the, the game, didn't you? Here's why. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I, I know this is. I know this is a disaster now, and Gabe's freaking out. But I'm so ADD. I've also been in this basement since 5:30 this morning, so I apologize. <laughs> I'm going a little stir crazy, to be honest. Wait, with hold you. on. I want to ask Jake a question. Jake, is your is your pick man on fire? Yes, my pick's man on fire. Okay. So I, 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 I'm just gonna sit so here and li- listen to, to 45 so minutes of Kevin's I, 18 because we are true romance. We are an enemy of the state. Now we're gonna hear. We're eventually gonna hear every single Tony Scott movie from Kevin. <laughs> I am so, not. So that there's not gonna be nothing left to be said. I am not going to go into Man on Fire because I'm gonna let. I actually didn't know that was Jake's pick, so my apologies. Um, I I didn't see that. Is that in the show notes? I didn't see. It. I'm sorry. No, um, I just for some reason I knew Jake was gonna pick that. That's why I asked. This is the only thing I'll say. Uh, enemy of the state. That that's kind of the more intentioned one because on our show we always go back to personal reasons why we love certain things and that one had a personal family thing for me. My dad and I love that movie together. So I get you guys can make fun of me and you know Kevin you screw. No, this I just up. think it's funny that we just got thirty minutes on a movie that's not really minutes. even your number one. But then we then recently <laughs> found out that it's not even really your number two. So we just got thirty minutes on why Enemy of the State is your third favorite Tony Scott but, movie. Hey, I'm being authentic, man. This is just what's I happening in it. my head at the moment. The only I thing I'll it. say about Man on Fire and the reason why it's my favorite Tony Scott movie outside of True Romance, now that I'm remembering. Is there's a line in the film? This is the last thing I'll say, and then I want Jake to actually take Man of Steel. Or Man, I'm good, man. Just Man on Fire. Um, Man, of Steel. Just, Man on Fire is mine. Move on. So there's a line in the movie where I think it's Christopher Walken. Uh, he's talking about uh, essentially um, he's talking about you know the masterpieces that uh, that the character you know his killing is his masterpiece or killing is his art, and he's about to paint his masterpiece. So there's a moment in the film where Denzel goes upstairs into someone's random room. Uh, with like a rocket launcher of some sort. And the guy in the room says to him, you know, essentially, why why are you going to do this? Why are you going to kill somebody? And he, and he, and he said, uh, he said, don't you believe in forgiveness? And Denzel's character goes, uh, what was the line, Jake? He goes, forgiveness is between them and God. Yeah. It's, it's my, it's, it's just my job to arrange the meeting. Yeah. There you go. See, Jake? I know that line because it's my actual number one favorite Tony Scott <laughs> Sorry. film. Sorry. Not my number two, not my number three, but my number one favorite Tony Scott film. Jake, yeah. tell us why. I'm not sure I want to anymore. Here, all right, for the next 45 minutes, I will be explaining to you why. I, I love no. how my, my, my rant went from 30 to 45 minutes in two minutes. Because it just kept going. <laughs> when the joke began, we were at 30 minutes. You're wasting your time, Hamilton. Oh, I will take every goddamn minute that I want to to explain my why, why, why Man on Fire is number one. Here's why Man on Fire is number one for me. It felt like, and you're right, at, at a certain point later in his career, Tony Scott kind of started like like really like digging into the style. But Man on Fire felt like the first time that he discovered it. And it yeah. felt like he That's discovered his there. love of yeah. filmmaking all over again. 
And it felt like he stumbled into this like new style and he just seemed so excited, but he still was able to like keep it constrained. He was still tinkering with different things. The way, even the way he presents subtitles, uh, he presents subtitles for sentences said in English to mm. emphasize certain things that they said. I think it is legitimately one of Denzel's most incredible roles, which says a lot for a performance like that. Um, I, I think the score is absolutely incredible. Later on in his career, he would take this style, what I would kind of refer to as the man on fire style, especially with like Domino and Deja Vu. And mm-hmm. it kind of felt like every time I watched one of those movies, it just sort of felt like, dude, I get that you want this to be man on fire, but it's not man on fire. Dude, the, I'm telling you, like the the for the second time he did it, I was like, oh, we're doing this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're doing, oh, we're doing this man on fire. Like, like if he'd just done that and then kind of gone back to like his '90s uh, spy game and uh, yeah. an enemy of the state style, I would have been like super cool with it. But the fact, that, but it just felt like he discovered this new toy to play with, right. and he didn't want to let it go. And not only did he not want to let it go, he wanted to hold it tighter and tighter with every movie that he made. But I just think with, I do love that particular style and the way that he uses it in in Man on Fire is pitch perfect. It's like, it's not overused. He's just kind of discovering what he can do with it. Um, Just the the way he, 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 he edits it. It really feels like a filmmaker filmmaking. And I think it is, it it was whenever I I was doing, uh, I was writing for the newspaper at the time and doing top 10 lists. Um, at the end of every year, it was my number one film of the year. It came out in April. It was my number one film all the way through the rest of the year. Um, and uh, and I think that, yeah, there, there are countless incredible lines. And, Interesting. And the plot is, is intricate and complicated, but not so much that, like, you can't follow it. I remember being very surprised by, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin it, but, like, what the resolution ended up being. Um, and it really, it is a role that is perfectly suited for Denzel. One of his, I, I'd argue, one of his probably top three or four roles. But that line, Jake, when he says, I don't, I, you know, that's between them and God. See, I was more of a fan of the, um, uh, you know, when he's got the, the bomb up the dude's yeah. ass and he's strapped you had more the time. car. And, and then and he, and he goes, uh, and the guy goes, last wish, please, last wish. He goes, last wish, I wish you had more time dude Didn't do you, you st- remember do you remember the um, unstoppable junket <laughs> do you remember what so it was the first time i interviewed I ever interviewed denzel and this is this will actually give me some a little bit of credibility as to why man of steel or man man of steel man on fire <laughs> i am having a the worst it, it's and it's for the next 30 minutes farts, we will be man. talking about why kevin loves man of I steel can do that let's do that anyways i was wait do you like man of steel i didn't think you liked man of steel i've, I've come back around to it sure Oh Christ! I can't keep track of I, any I, of you. I have literally been sitting at this desk and this chair <laughs> since five thirty this morning. It's been twelve hours. I no, I, I haven't even moved. I haven't had a break. I haven't eaten lunch. Nothing. That's, that's why my brain's so scattered. But the last thing I'll say about Man on Fire, real real quick though, is that you do have, like you said, Jake Denzel's performance is incredible. When I interviewed Denzel for Unstoppable, Tony, the timer in the room, I was so nervous. I'd never met Denzel or interviewed Denzel ever, and. I got three questions in and I got a rap. So at the end of the interview, I have this on video. I, I looked at Denzel. And I said, Denzel, they're wrapping me up. I wish we had more time. And he starts like dying laughing. And it was like one of my favorite, like, cause I was like, I got to use a line on him, but it made perfect sense for what we were doing. And that, that was just so, so proud of that. I was so happy. Anyway. Well, you're both wrong. Uh, and the correct answer is Crimson Tide. It's, it's clearly. Tarantino the best movie that Tony Scott's ever worked on. Also my favorite uh, of all time Um, for this reason. I've talked about this on the show before. I love when actors just get to sink their teeth into amazing material. And Denzel is a lot of fun as the big bad guy in a lot of Ridley Scott and Tony Scott movies, the, the big persona, you know, that everybody sort of has to 
gravitate around. But in Crimson Tide, he gets to be overshadowed by Gene Hackman. And it's a little bit more fun to see Denzel have to push back on a bigger actor and to see those two go at it head to head. Like a lot of times when Denzel's in a scene with somebody, he's just the dominant force, right? And he's not with Hackman. Hackman overpowers him at every step of the way. I like the fact that Hackman had a rapport with Tony Scott already um, and Denzel was starting to get into that. It's also one of those amazing situations where, A, it's on a submarine um, and I just hate the idea of submarines. I can't, I'm not comfortable in them. I would never be able to go in one because Kevin, when you're talking about- There's a U-boat here in Chicago. Would you ever go and you can like walk through it? Would you ever go- Oh yeah. It's just stationary? Yeah, 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 yeah. No- that's fine. I have no problem with doing that. But yeah. like the idea of being in the middle it's, of the it's ocean, the water. Oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's like like if something goes wrong, you can't get back. You can't li- like when Cameron went down to the bottom of the ocean in his tiny little c- cart. You know <laughs> that yeah. that terrifies me to no end. Um, so I can't do that. But I also love in the script of Crimson Tide. First off, it's so beautifully constructed. Uh, in that it's it's oh God. I almost made this joke. It's airtight. The script is airtight. Um, but. You don't know the entire time who's right and who's wrong. It's about this, uh, should they launch the nuclear codes or not? Did the communication that they get, um, was it accurate? And Denzel's trying to uh, argue about the fact that they need to wait. And uh, Gene Hackman's character is trying to push them along. And you're not quite sure who's correct. And I love that. That type of, you know, gray area type stuff that drives the tension of that forward is fantastic. I prefer, while I do like that man, a man of uh, man on fire, uh, technique, I, I got tired of it by the time Tony Scott played it out. So um, I, I, I discredit those films a little bit just because they lean on them too much. I probably shouldn't. Man on Fire should get a lot of credit for being the first movie that did it. And I do think that's a really good film. I agree with Kevin. Uh, I don't think Top Gun's a great movie. Uh, it's seminal in the fact that it was huge at the time. When you go back and rewatch it, you're like, what the hell is this movie? It, 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 but it's almost a great time capsule of the sure. 80s. Like if you were to like dig up like a decade in the ground and open it up. Top Gun would be a perfect representation of what that decade was. For sure. The way that they used Kenny Loggins (laughs) songs and just a cruise is like, he's such a movie star in that film, obviously, but it's not a great film. I do understand. Sean, I'm surprised you didn't ask Tarantino about Crimson Tide. I'm like, that that would have been a cool discussion to have. Yeah, we probably should have gotten into it. We had so much ground to cover. Um, I almost went with Beverly Hills Cop 2. I really do like Beverly Hills Cop 2 a lot. It is a sequel that sort of builds on uh, a template that worked, but the first one is still really, really good, too. So I went with uh, Crimson Tide. Audience picks. Let's see. We have Gannon Nordberg and Previn Nadu, uh, who emails us every single week. They both said Enemy of the State. Uh, Martian Dance Hunter uh, said Beverly Hills Cop 2. Michelle Garrist sent us an email. She said Spy Game. And John Palmer went with me for Crimson Tide. So obviously, a ton of really great films to choose from. Next week, we're gonna, I'm gonna change my pick again, real quick. Actually, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kev's gonna go with Gladiator. <laughs> That's Ridley. Yes, I know, Kev. That was the joke. <laughs> that was the joke. I, I am. I gotta be honest. I'm with Kevin. I also thought I was like, does does she know that that's the difference? I am style? so sorry for derailing that, guys. That was. Well, Not get like ready me. for next week, Kev, when you're going to really throw us off the rails because Ugh. we're playing hashtag best picture blend. You will let us know your favorite best picture winner of all time, either via email at realblend.com or play along on social media, hashtag best picture blend. Dot com. Uh, no, not dot com. <laughs> Just hashtag best picture blend. We're all messing up, man. <laughs> yeah, it's late. Uh, our review is coming from SLC 
movie fan. Um, what's the name of that Matthew Lillard movie? SLC Punk. SLC Punk. I hope that's who this is. I hope it's Matthew Lillard writing to us to call us the it best a little woozy here. movie podcast around. And they write, all of my life, I have been a total movie nerd. I love good movies, bad movies, weird movies, blockbusters, indie films, and everything in between. There's something special about the art form that allows us to explore so many different facets of ourselves and the world around us. Ever since I found this podcast after their incredible interview with Quentin Tarantino, I realized that other people feel the same way. These guys aren't movie snobs or purists. They just love cinema and all of the many parts that go into making it. They do a great job exploring what makes movies great technically, intellectually, and emotionally. They have amazing guests that offer a unique perspective into the movie-making process. Thank you guys for putting in all of the effort and commitment it takes to run such an amazing show. It is truly appreciated. So thank you, SLC Movie Fan. That's a fantastic uh, wow, that really is. Show. Yeah, that was really great. If I were to write like a fake review for someone to be like, oh, this is what people think of us, I would write something like that. There you go. Are you admitting that this was you who wrote this yeah, review? Yeah, yeah. I really thought that the uh, obscure Matthew Lillard performance were uh, a reference would throw you guys off, but you nailed it. I want to remind everybody about the bonus episode from Barry Sonnenfeld. Yes, please listen to that. Please, 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 please. So, Barry, um, if people are only listening to the main show and are like, why am I going to listen to this? Uh, Barry did Men in Black. Um, he did... Uh, Get Shorty with John Travolta. He started his career with the Coen brothers, uh, worked on Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, and one of Barton Fink. Was it Barton Fink was the other one? Um, he shot Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, and right, Blood yeah. Simple. He shot Big. He shot Big. He tells when amazing stories Valley. of working with yeah. Uh, yeah, Tom Hanks. So, I mean, just a wealth of fantastic. Also, I actually really like the He did the Adams Family movies. I love the Adams Family movies. The Adams Family He explains uh, how he gave the story of Forrest Gump. Uh, to Tom Hanks, and then why he didn't take the movie, why he didn't direct it, and why instead he's just a no BS guy. Like his his stories are fantastic. He's uh, been involved in a lot of amazing stuff. So if you haven't listened to the bonus episode yet, I'm sending everybody over there to go do that right now. So be sure to tune in next week. Um, I think next week is Alicia Silverstone. Is that who's on the main show? Gabe is thinking about it. He's not sure. We're gonna have Alicia Silverstone on the show relatively soon. At some point in the history of the show, Alicia Silverstone will be on it. Boy, it's just going. So keep it locked here. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Wait, before we go, I, I really want to do a, a thing like so. In, in our video on YouTube, are we? How are we situated? Is Kevin above me? No, he's he's to my he's to my right. Because I want to I want to do like a he's to my left. I want to do like a Brady Bunch thing. Like goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Tenet. Tenet. <laughs> that sounded so good in my head. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.